Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. Venture for Canada is a national charity on a mission to foster the entrepreneurial skills and mindsets of young Canadians. Our vision is a Canada where young people can equitably realize their entrepreneurial potential to build the most prosperous place in the world. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs and to learn about how they develop their entrepreneur mindset and skills. In season eight, we'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. In this episode, we're joined by Stephen Pelos. He's a former governor of the Bank of Canada and a widely recognized economist with nearly 40 years of experience in financial markets, forecasting, and economic policy, including 35 years in the public sector. Stephen sits down with Scott to discuss how to navigate uncertainty. I am very excited to have Stephen Pelos, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, on Venture for Canada's podcast, A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. I know myself and so many other Canadians enjoyed uh, hearing from you during the pandemic. And when I think of the early days of COVID-19, your face will forever be uh, top of mind. And I think many Canadians will have many uh, memories uh, of you on television uh, from those early days uh, of the pandemic. And thank you so much to your service for Canada, both during your time as governor of the Bank of Canada, but also throughout your close to 40 years of public service in Canada. Well, you're welcome. It's been quite a ride and I've always felt proud of what it was I was doing. It always felt very meaningful and never more so than during that crisis. You're the author of The Age of Uncertainty, which is a fantastic book. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, and I've read it uh, earlier this year and just reread it again in advance of this uh, interview. Stephen, what motivated you to write this book? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, say that uh, there are similarities between today and the 1970s. Um, and then they're quick to say, but there are really big differences too. Uh, what's, what's uh, a lot of things happened in the 1970s that caused economics almost to fall apart. And John Kenneth Galbraith wrote The Age of Uncertainty to explain to people why economics was failing to explain what was going on uh, around them at that time. And while I was a grad student in the late 70s, economics was being rewritten uh, because economics had kind of broken down. Macroeconomic uh, frameworks just didn't work in the 70s. Um, I came to this thinking that uh, maybe I could help uh, companies think longer term. I wanted, I wanted to uh, contribute to the discussion of short-termism, you know, in the way companies, uh, companies behave. And, you know, if you want to tell a company they shouldn't be practicing short-termism, you really should offer an alternative, which is something that helps frame their longer-term thinking. Uh, and this is what makes, makes you think about these historical episodes and whether the 70s are relevant to today. And I, I quickly discovered that there aren't many things that are constant. The things that uh, economists usually think of as constants, uh, like population growth or you know, technology and those kinds of things actually today are very much not constant. And in fact, the most important one being demographics uh, changing dramatically. And so I quickly realized that if I was going to help anybody think about the long term, I had to understand the things that were in motion. 
And uh, so that kind of brought me to these uh, five tectonic forces, uh, their emotion, and try to help people understand how they would affect the business environment. So to be honest, uh, I started in a different place where I ended up. I, 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 you know, I didn't realize at the beginning that there was an actual narrative, a thread that would connect these things together um, at, uh, when I first set out. As governor uh, of the Bank of Canada, um, one of the things that that you you know had to deal with is all of the these massive techno tectonic changes uh, to uh, to the world and to, to Canada's uh, economy. Can you talk a little bit about some of those principal forces that are creating this age of uncertainty? Yeah, so I I, I called my little book the next age of uncertainty in deference to Galbraith's big book on the age of uncertainty sort of riding on his coattails, if you like. But uh, many of the forces that are at play are working opposite to the way they were back when Galbraith was writing. And demographic being the, one, the most important one. It, in the 1970s, uh, people like me were just entering the workforce. And there was this gigantic increase in the global workforce uh, because of the post-war baby boom, you know, approximately 20 years after, after World War II and then lasting for about... 20 years, that bulge. And we're only now, 50 years later, getting the retirement wave of that people. So, so if you think, if you think about the past 50 years as, you know, on average, that's normal, you'd be wrong. The past 50 years were historically very abnormal. And now that we're the 50 years of, of the baby boom is over, now we're going back to something what's more the much longer term notion of normal with slower economic growth lower real interest rates, those kinds of features that we had like before World War II. But that's that's just the one force. Technology, technological progress is uh, you know something we counter every day, but it's my second tectonic force. It has uh, only happened three times in human history where we've had major industrial revolutions, uh, the, the steam engine, electricity, and then the computer chip. And now we're having the fourth, which is the digitization of everything. And so those are that they, those industrial revolutions give unique stresses uh, to the global economy. So we're entering one of those periods now. The third one is uh, rising income inequality, which always comes along with industrial revolutions. As you can imagine, you bring in a new technology. There's a bunch of people that get their jobs destroyed and and so on, and they end up in the bottom of the heap. And who makes out is the people that introduce the technology. So you get this widening of income disparities. We've had a big widening of income disparities in the wake of the computer chip revolution. And that's going to happen again now uh, under the digitization revolution. And so that's a really important stressor for the world. That gives rise to political polarization, populism, and a lot of extra stress. Hard for governments to do their jobs. And so it adds volatility to the mix. And the fourth uh, uh, tectonic force is the easiest. That's rising debt. Everybody knows about rising debt. But just to remind you that governments today are as indebted as they were right after World War II. So there's another kind of similarity to that period in history. Difference being that back then we had a baby boom that would eventually pay for it. And this time we're not going to have a baby boom to help us pay for it. And the fifth tectonic force is climate change, or more specifically, the forced transition to net zero by 2050. That is a complex overlay that goes on top of all of these other things. 
which will add a lot more uncertainty to how business is going to unfold in that period. Right now, people are saying we're going to be net zero by 2050, but no one really knows the path we will take to get there and certainly what that might mean for an individual company or an individual. Uh, so all those things together, I think everybody could talk about the one at a time, but what intrigued me was that they're all moving a lot right now. And when you, when you feed nonlinear forces uh, into a mathematical framework, uh, what happens is mathematicians have a theory around this. It's called the mathematics of chaos. And because the things interact with each other and produce literally chaos, uh, if you like, completely inexplicable outcomes based on your knowledge of the underlying system. So uh, that just suggests to me we're headed for a very, very volatile period. Things are not going to quieten down once the pandemic is behind us. It's interesting. I was thinking about this interview last night. My in-laws just arrived and they're in their early 60s, recently retired and have some anxiety around the market conditions uh, as we tape in October 2022, like many Canadians. And I was thinking of your book and the th comment I said to them is the only prediction one can make is that there's going to be more uncertainty. We don't know. There's a hundred different, there's a thousand different directions where things can go. And I think that that mantra, which, you, you know, is a thesis, kind of one of the core thesis of your book is an important one to think about and how you, you, you know, reference the work of Nassim Tlaib and Black Swan, but also anti-fragile. And I think one of the things that we try to think about at Venture for Canada is how can we foster young people or institutions uh, to not just be resilient, but actually be anti-fragile in the face of uh, uncertainty? So in essence, uh, that a, you know, a resilient thing, if you throw it on the ground, it doesn't break. An anti-fragile thing, if uh, uh, you throw it on the ground, it actually becomes stronger. So a, a question that I have for you, Steve, is as you think of as you give advice to, to entrepreneurs and you think about people running uh, businesses across the country, how can they foster anti-fragile institutions and businesses that actually thrive in this increasingly uncertain environment? From an individual point of view, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a world in which uh, the idea that adaptability or flexibility uh, is always worth having, you know, I've always worked that way in my head. Every time you make a decision, you ask yourself, are you cutting off future optionality by making a decision? Or are you creating more optionality for your future? Um, and so usually I try to make sure that I wasn't cutting off avenues for my future whenever I made a decision. If I made the wrong decision, it would. And, um, and so uh, that kind of thinking would be you know, doubly important in the world I'm describing. And so, you know, if you're if you if you have this sort of as an individual, you have an, a continuous learning kind of lifestyle, that's going to pay off really well in a much more volatile world than it did. You know, in the past it just meant you had more interesting opportunities, but in the future it might be more like survival. So it's it's more anti-fragile to be continuously learning so that you're prepared for a shift to a new path. Uh, because your job is no longer needed or something that like that because of technology. Also, financial conservatism. I mean, I think my generation, um, and, and I am like your, like your in-laws, I'm in, in my, my mid-60s, 
uh, I think my generation has not been financially conservative. And it could be partly because interest rates in general have been falling and then low for much of that time. But also the availability of credit became, you know, easier, almost like a self-serve buffet of credit for, for young people today. And, um, you know, banks are accommodating, they put it there and off you go. Well, I think uh, as we go into a more volatile world, people won't buy the biggest house that the bank will let them buy. They'll, they'll hold dry powder. They'll carry a higher level of savings. Uh, you know, when there's two people, two people, two breadwinners in the house, uh, that's great. And they've got flexibility. Presumably, if the if two people are in exactly the same firm, that's that's not risk mitigating. If they're in two different firms, that would be risk mitigating. You see, that, you see what I'm saying? There's a little bit of risk management that can go into everyday living. And so I think I think uh, we'll see people adapt to this. They will they will they will change their behavior around things like mortgages or whether they rent right away uh, or or buy right away or rent for longer, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, we'll see more multi generational living, uh, just because it pools the resources and keeps everybody uh, safer from risk. And uh, businesses, well, there's lots of things that businesses I think will do. It's interesting. In some ways, a little bit of a, a reversion to the past. I think of your book where you talk about your personal story and uh, you, at various points in your childhood, how you lived with your grandparents and, and your parents in one multi-generational uh, uh, family. Uh, and yeah, how that can be like a, a very cost-effective approach. And it's interesting in our work at Venture for Canada, where we work with many people who are kind of between the ages of 22 and 30, we see that the rise of, the, of multi-generational living uh, today uh, way more than uh, people, you know, 10, year, 10 20 uh, years ago. So in some ways, a little bit of a reversion to the past. That's right. And, and you know, you, you can hope, if you like, that unlike my case, I can tell you where when I lived in a, in a three-generation house with my grandparents and my parents, it was not Downton Abbey, it just, so, just so you know. Uh, it was a quite small, what they call a wartime house that was built by, by the government for returning veterans uh, from World War II uh, to house their baby boom. You know, it was to encourage people to have a house and have more kids. And uh, so it was not a nice big place like on Downton Abbey. But in but any case, it was a congenial place, you know, and... Uh, and the reason it happened was because my parents uh, were in financial trouble, and so and and so in many ways it happens now. If, if the stresses and the volatility affect the kids, then you know you see more of this multi generational uh, uh, living, and um, and I think it it could be something that people will opt for. Uh, think of it not as a financial stress situation, but in later in life where more caregiving is needed uh, for the, the older uh, generation, then how convenient is that? If the, if, the, if the house can accommodate the number of people, then it's, it's quite handy to be there for that extra, that extra, lend that extra hand, you know, when it's needed. And, uh, and so there may be, you know, uh, not a financial reason, but just a, a practicality reason or, you know, just because people care, you know. Uh, and so uh, all these things, uh, they, there, there are many other things I think that individuals uh, 
may do. But I think the more interesting stuff is what will companies do in this uh, more volatile world. Uh, they, they're they're going to have to really work hard to prosper in a high volatility world. But at least companies are more likely to think of risk in the way it should, which is that it's two-sided. Uh, most people, when you hear the word risk, they're, that's negative. They just think, oh, that's bad. But in fact, uh, risk comes with two sides. So there's usually at least as much good luck as there is bad luck because of risk. And so as a company, you need to be ready to capitalize on the good luck. You know, it's not the same as just defending against bad luck. And for individuals too, and that's what I meant by uh, if you invest in skills, if you're always doing continuous learning as a part of your life, I, what I like to do is I read, I like to read fiction. I read lots of fiction, but I try to alternate between a fiction and a nonfiction book. It's just kind of been a habit probably for, for well, most of my life. And uh, that doesn't mean I'm learning new skills all the time, but I am always learning some new stuff. And that, anyway, that idea uh, could really become something that generates a premium in your life because it builds adaptability or flexibility into your into your thinking and it builds your openness to do new things if uh, something bad happens to you. And the ability to be creative in many ways, especially with more, in essence, the more you know, the more you can sometimes connect a disparate dots that uh, others might not necessarily see. Shifting a little bit to your personal life. And by the way, one of the things I loved about this book is you're, you know, it, you've been in a central banker, you were head of the, the Bank of Canada, and many other folks in similar situations to you write books that are not necessarily the most accessible uh, to the general uh, public. And uh, I think uh, it's a testament uh, to your communication style, both today as well as when you were in the governor of the Bank of Canada, that you're very effective at translating quite uh, very complicated uh, concepts uh, into language that everyday Canadians can easily understand. So I just wanted to, to share that uh, a compliment around your book, because I think that this is a, a book it does, does not require uh, one to have a PhD in economics to read. And I think that that is one of the things that makes this book so valuable for all Canadians. Well, thank you. I, I wanted it to be, when I set out, I wanted it to be relevant around the boardroom table right? Because I was really aiming to help companies think about longer term issues in planning their businesses. But as I worked on it, I realized, you know, many of the things that are going to happen in this new world, this next stage of uncertainty, apply just as much to individuals. And so therefore, I, I worked hard to make sure it was accessible for the conversation around the kitchen table, too. So that that was one of the objectives. And I'm glad to hear you say that it it turned out that way. In terms of your lived experience as a policymaker, and I, and I think back to that March 2020 period, there are probably few moments in, in modern Canadian history where there was so much uncertainty. I remember even reading in the news, a lot of the discussion was around, oh, is there going to be a lot of deflation? There was no sense, are we headed for the Great Depression? Are, there was a lot of different potentials of what, what could have happened. And when you think back to those uh, late, the period of, kind of late February 2020 through March 2020, and that unprecedented period of, of uh, uncertainty, at least in my lifetime, not necessarily in the context of, of human history, though, what did you learn in, as, a, as a policymaker in terms of how to navigate uncertain situations? 
Well, um, you've you've positioned it very well. It was uh, it was a very scary uh, moment. Uh, that's mainly the emotion that comes back to me when I think back on it. Well, there was there was also this sense of you know if you've been a if you've been a firefighter uh, all your all your career, and mostly what you've done is give first aid classes and uh, help people install smoke detectors and polish the fire truck. Uh, and then suddenly there's a big three alarm fire. This is what you're trained to do, right? This is why the firehouse exists. It's not for handing out smoke detectors, you know, it's, that's great. Fire prevention is, is really good. And, you know, you might say if, if you did a really great job with fire prevention, you wouldn't need firefighters, but of course we know we, we would. Uh, so central banks were made for what happened. And, and usually people think of the central bank as a place that issues banknotes and, you know, moves interest rates once in a while. Nobody understands why they're going up or going down really, because it's pretty complicated stuff, you know, highly esoteric. And you can explain it uh, 10 different ways and uh, they could all be complicated ways, you know, and, and, and so, but along comes an actual crisis and the best thing to think of is that the central bank is the firefighter. And so uh, what you do is you've got these tools which amount to liquidity. And it is just like having a fire hose. Uh, you, you make that liquidity available. I think of the, the, the economy, the great big hole opened up in the economy. We shut it down. We literally shut it down. I mean, 20% of it was shut down. We, we shut down the whole thing and then necessity parts uh, stayed open. Uh, GDP shrank by 20% uh, virtually overnight. And uh, so the idea from the central bank's point of view is fill the hole up with liquidity. And that'll allow everybody to roll their boats across, across that hole. And once we get to the other side, then you can get out of your boat and then it's okay. You can drain the liquidity out of the hole, right? Which is the mopping up stage. And um, my, what I learned, I think, I mean, at the time, my memories of the 2008 crisis were still reasonably fresh. I wasn't a central banker, but I was in the financial system. I was uh, lending money from Export Development Canada, filling the gaps left behind by the banks. Um, so I was on that front line then, and I remember watching it, you know, what was going on on the policy side. And I think if we look back then, eventually all the tools got used, but it took like a long time to develop a new tool, get approval for a new tool, put the new tool in place. Then a new crack opened up. Oh, well, you need another tool. So the crisis kind of festered longer. This time, having been through all that and having great, uh, team beside me, you know, Keller, Carolyn Wilkins uh, was the uh, senior deputy governor, had been through the 2008 crisis, developing all these liquidity tools uh, back when Mark Kearney was the governor. So she was perfect to be in the right place at the right time. And, and we agreed that we would just deploy everything all at once, right away. And to me, that worked like a charm. I mean, I think, I think it's almost like you're using overwhelming force rather than gradualism, you know, well, maybe it's not as bad as it looks, let's just do this. Well, and then you'd find out it is as bad as it looks, you have to do something else. And then the crisis can kind of get some momentum going and it's hard to stop it. Uh, but if you give it everything at once, 
it's just overwhelmed. And I remember a reporter asking me, don't, don't you think you're overdoing it a little? You know, like, cause, cause I think they thought it wasn't as bad as I was describing. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, a firefighter hardly ever gets criticized for using too much water, right? They get the fire out and then you mop up the water. That, that's how it works. And so I thought we carried that attitude through and I think it worked very well for us. So that was an important, if not, I, I always thought it might be that way, but now we learned, you know, that it, yes, it, it works that way. The second thing that I thought was new to me was I was skeptical that governments, and I don't mean ours or just ours, I mean, all governments would have trouble bringing their tools to bear. And we knew they had to be the most important tool. Fiscal policy had the had all the room to maneuver. Central banks didn't have much uh, leverage in this situation, but they just had to calm everything down. Who knew that fiscal policy would be so good that it would actually fill up the whole gap and everybody would be able to go on like before? I mean, of course, people still got hurt. I don't don't get me wrong, but but my goodness, as a macroeconomic shock, we've never had anything that big or that sudden. And we've never had a fiscal policy so good, so well designed to get the job done, especially in Canada, because the tools were made elastic. They were only as big as was needed to respond to the underlying problem. So when they said there's 30 billion or 40 billion available, people accused them of spending too much money. They didn't spend the money. They just put it on the shelf so people could ask for it, you know, and so I got to say, that was a big learning for me, that when the crisis comes, governments can look really slow and not able to decide and always arguing, you know, the U.S., Congress, and Senate, and our, could we have a package? No, or maybe a small package, big package. Here in Canada, it was easier, but even so, I just, I didn't expect governments anywhere in the world to come together as cleanly as they did and get the job done. So it just shows you, what, like, well, Ian Bremmer's new book, The Power of Crisis, is essentially that it's it's like when a crisis happens, my goodness, people really move the yardsticks, and it makes me think. If you think about Ian's book, together with my book, mine saying, "Well, there's going to be all this volatility, and politics is going to be a struggle, you know, to deal with it." And, I, and the suggestion is that if it takes a crisis to make a decision, we're just going to go from crisis to crisis to crisis. And yes, decisions will happen, but only in those crises. And the rest of the time, you know, politics will just be arguing with each other. Polarized politics will just, you know, get us nowhere. And so that's a recipe for volatility forever, right? Because the tools will never calm it down. It reminds me of the famous quote from Rahm Emanuel uh, when he uh, was, well, he was the former chief of staff for President Obama, mayor of Chicago, you know, long time civil servant in the US. And he once said, never let a crisis go to waste. And I think for many, and he's by far, the, uh, there are many other people in the history of the world who have has said a similar quote, but I think it's an important one to think about is just the extent to which in moments of human history where there are everything is up in the air. That's often when there are by far the, the most changes. And one thinks back to the period of World War II and shortly after as well. So many of the international institutions that exist today, so much of our world order was really created out of the ashes of a period of incredible uncertainty. And while there have been changes, those institutions largely are still intact uh, today. That's just one example, but it's to say, I think it's a really interesting to think of both in terms of government and policy, 
but also even in the extent of business as well. If you're running a business that goes through a crisis, there's likely to be way more changes uh, during that period of crisis than in potentially a period of prosperity. And when there's a crisis, what do people really need? I mean, they're in the fog of war. They have no idea what's happening to them. What they need is a clear voice that says, okay, we understand this. We have the tools. We're taking care of it. And, and I don't care if it takes this uh, much. You know, like when they said, well, why do you need such a big facility? You know, how, why do you need to do that much uh, in order to calm things down? The answer is because I'm going to use as much water as I want to get the fire out. I am not going to measure my water. You know, on Star Trek, Jean-Luc Picard never gets in an argument uh, with Worf about how many photon torpedoes we should use. Okay. There is never a debate about whether we should use six or 10 or, or only one. Never. It's like load photon torpedoes, launch photon torpedoes, and then the job is done. And it was like that. That's exactly what was in my mind. I'm not kidding. That's exactly what was in my mind as we were in those meetings and deciding, you know, what, what should we do? How big should it be? How, how, well, how should we do tackle this? Is it throw everything at it and everything will be fine. And, and that, that, that voice of reason, I think is important to people in a crisis, right? It's, it's, it, it causes them to say, okay, well, we, we're going to get through this somehow. And that, there you go. But we did. That reassurance is critical to calming people in a period where they have no idea how things are going to go. And by the way, I do love all of your Star Trek references in the book. There, there are many, and I can tell you uh, are a, a large, uh, a big fan of Star Trek. One book I recommend listeners uh, to read, which I read uh, four or five months after March 2020, sometime in summer 2020, is John Kenneth Galbraith's uh, The Great Crash which I imagine, yeah, you have read, uh, Steve, and it's an excellent book uh, to see, okay, what happens when there's a big crisis and there is no action at the beginning? And you end up having a protracted uh, economic uh, depression for, for many years. And it was, I didn't know that much about, I knew about the Great Depression at the high level, more about its political consequences. But that book is a, a fascinating one to read to understand what caused the Great Depression, of which, of course, there's there are many factors, but one of which was not using virtually any water at the beginning to to stem the crisis. And then you have a much bigger issue. So it's a, to your point, I think when we're taping this in October 2022, two and a half years later, I think a lot of people to some extent have forgotten what would have been the consequences of not acting? Uh, and it's an important one to look at history and to see what can happen uh, if you don't use enough water. Well, absolutely right. Uh, even in 2008, we didn't use enough water. You know, we, we, we dribbled it out. We were like, oh, well, we, let's try this. Let's try that. Then let's try this now. And in 2014, we were still not fully recovered from the consequences of the global financial crisis. It was not really until about 2015 where we, we got about there. And so that's a long time. Um, you know, and, and I think, I think uh, you know, Galbraith's point was perfectly right, but I mean, we didn't, we haven't really learned that lesson that well. I mean, and here we are, we're much longer afterwards in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, still not realizing, you know, you should just use your force, get it done. 
uh, or look at Japan, you know, they never cleaned up their banks back in 1989, 1990. And so, you know, we got the lost decade, you know, that, that, and so those lessons are learned hard because there's, there's costs, political costs to moving quickly and being decisive. Uh, sometimes it doesn't go so well. I think we, we should be proud that this turned out pretty well. Uh, you're right, though. People have completely forgotten. They're talking about the, the inflation risk and, you know, inflation has gotten out of hand and so on. And no one prefaces those comments with, oh, by the way, thanks for averting the Second Great Depression. Uh, which is what everybody was worried about. It's what mo many economists said. This would be the worst recession, at least the worst recession since the Great Depression. And, you know, all the deflation was there. We had all the ingredients of a, of a depression. So we averted that. Uh, and believe me, it's much easier to deal with an inflation problem than it is to rectify a depression. History, history certainly proves that. Agreed. And one, one only needs to study the Great Depression and some other economic challenges, including the Depression of the Victorian era, which is one uh, piece you talk a little bit uh, in your book. Uh, as an aside, if our listeners uh, want uh, to learn about another inspiring Canadian, John Kenneth Galbraith, who is referenced a lot in uh, Steve's book, is uh, a fascinating person to learn uh, more about. But that's just that's a footnote uh, as a uh, as a background. He did a lot of things from a very humble background in uh, St. Thomas, uh, Ontario. And uh, I, it's interesting. Most Canadians, I feel like, are not that aware of Gen John Kenneth Galbraith. And many don't even know that he is Canadian. So as a Canadian, I feel like I need to highlight that. And, and he wrote, he basically wrote what I call popular economics, right? He, he wrote economics for regular folks to just read and understand the economy better. Uh, and so as, as an academic, he was a little bit dismissed. Right, because he was not serious, you know, doing math and all the the rocket science type of economics. He was uh, more like an explainer, and uh, and I guess that's a little bit how I see myself. You know, I kind of explain things to people. But you know, Galbraith was incredibly successful, um, and I remember he managed the price controls right in the uh, in the United States. I mean, he was a Harvard uh, economist and all that stuff, but. Anyway, as, as the academics uh, that teach you in university, they'll say, oh, Galbraith, well, that, he's sort of a popular economist, not a, not a, a, not a serious one. But I don't, I don't agree, obviously. He's a very deep thinker. Yeah, and made a huge impact in terms of actually influencing uh, policy, which I think is one of the most important measures. Another piece of, in the book where you reference your personal life and how it impacted your relationship with uncertainty is your discussion uh, around a near-death experience that you had in 2004. For our listeners, can you speak a little bit about this experience and how it altered your relationship with uncertainty? Well, okay. Um, yeah, I was, uh, was, I was on the golf course with a good friend and, uh, and uh, I felt uh, feel a little unusual. Uh, I thought maybe it was just because it was a hot day, but... Uh, at a certain point, my head started to swim, swim and I uh, actually sat down in the middle of the fairway, the golf course, and and then I sort of settled down, and then I stood up. My friend was on the other side of the golf course or the fairway, and he said, are you okay? And I said, no, I don't think so. And that was the last thing I remember. I was, I was gone. And by the time he got to me, I had no heartbeat and no breath sounds. Um and a flatline basically and um 
anyway, I came to in a couple of minutes, uh, which was great because he did CPR. And, uh, and so this, this was a major turning point as I think it would be for almost anybody. Um, as it turned out, my, I had a faulty valve in my heart and they replaced it with a, with a steel one. And uh, I'd experienced sudden death and, um, and about 50% of the time you come out of it. And uh, when someone gives you CPR, it boosts your chances. Uh, so I was very lucky that uh, my friend Glenn was there uh, that day and he knew what he was doing. So I never forget Glenn's birthday. Uh, let's just say that. So, uh, but all that to say, after that, you kind of have this different look on life, which is like, it's almost like you're invincible. But also more to the point, uh, things that, you know, you kind of didn't value before or you thought was, you know, less important than work uh, suddenly became more important. And you realize you've reached a fork in the road and you, you behave differently from then on. And so this concept of a fork in the road has, plays quite a role in my book, as you know. So think about a decision you might have made 10 years ago or 20 years ago, like, oh, which university did you go to or whether to go or whether to get married or not or something like that. And think about if you'd made the opposite decision and then 20 years later, where would you be? It's hard to imagine those counterfactuals, but the point is that uncertainty accumulates through time because you make a decision and it causes a fork in the road. And so you spin up say two years or five years, there could be a really big gap between where you are and where you would have been if you'd made the opposite decision. And that is a measure of how time compounds uncertainty because you couldn't have guessed those things the day you made that decision. You might've imagined they were possible, but you didn't guess them. And so uh, this is an important understanding. Like when, you, when, when economists forecast like for a year ahead, there's a certain amount of uncertainty around that, of course. They have, two years ahead, the uncertainty is probably four times as big. And five years, like a business needs in order to run a business, it's massive amount of uncertainty around that forecast. So it's almost nonsense to focus on the core, the central scenario that the economist offers you as a guide to your business because the range of possibilities for that business are so is so wide it's it just makes no sense to spend all your money figuring out how to stay on that track so this is why i think a lot of businesses fail they are prepared for for those diverse outcomes and people i mean i, I of course now i look back on it and think that was an important fork in the road i Never once did I tell my kids they had to make their bed after that. I just thought, who really cares whether my kids make their bed or not? You know, it's like, it doesn't matter. You know? So if they want to get into a bed that's all rumpled at night, that's okay. Anyway, that's just a trivial little example, but it's, it's what something like that does to you. It, it causes you to reweigh the things you do and the things you spend your time and energy on. And you, for sure, you, what you do is you spend more time with friends and with family because it suddenly seems so incredibly valuable because you're 48 years old and it could have been all gone, you know? 
so you know otherwise when, when i was in my 40s i don't know if the listeners are like that if i was awake i was basically working i think that's such an important message for folks uh to hear and by the way it was also what i needed to hear today i've been a little hard on myself because i recently uh, we sent out uh, i'm getting married next year and i sent out a wedding uh, saved the dates and there was a little typo and i was being really hard on myself and i was like oh my god how did i not see that typo and then i was thinking about your remarks and i was like does it really matter? I was like, who cares? It's the save the date. What 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 matters if there if there's a if there's a typo? I share that that the date was right. There was just a uh, I won't go into the the specific details. So there was a relatively small little uh, uh, detail that was wrong, and uh, but the actual date was correct. And uh, one of the things I was thinking about is is and I share that just because I think that so many other listeners might. Think about something you might be hard on yourself that's some relatively trivial thing that you won't remember 10 or 20 years you know, later. And I think we all sometimes fixate sometimes on these things that aren't that, uh, aren't that valuable. So thank you for sharing that, that experience, uh, Steve. And, uh, and it's also a testament to the fact that you had this more relaxed approach to life and you also still had this significant level of professional success. It's not like you know, you had this experience and then you just coasted for the next, uh, you know, two decades that you're able to balance that mixture of, you know, family and building relationships with people while still having a very rewarding and successful career. Yes, uh, that's exactly right. I think um, when when we're in our career, we, we think we won't maximize our success without really working all the time. I think that's just, it's competitive. It is. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's quite natural. And yet what I've, what I've discovered is that in fact, to, to have, to be fresh and able to do innovative things and to participate in real time, uh, I need to be better rested and I need to be more widely read and I need to be, you know, a little less focused on that mechanics, you know? And so I think it actually served me well uh, to be able to sit back, keep my perspective. And indeed, one of the things it does promote in you is, is to actually participate in teamwork. Teamwork is not teamwork if the boss is doing it all too, you know? Teamwork means the boss has to have the trust to say, I know my team's taking care of that. And then when the team is taking care of that and they, and they know that, that you trust them, they will lay down in front of a train for you to get the job done. And if you, if that works both ways, then everybody's great. And the boss can actually relax and think and be ready for the big moment when it comes. And I think, I think that kind of thinking doesn't enter a lot in, in, in people's way of imagining a career and how they maximize it. Yeah. I think that that is excellent advice for, for managers and leaders to think about and, Working more or working harder is often not the right path. Uh, delegating and trusting one's team and, and giving them the authority to make decisions is often the, the best path uh, to make. One thing that comes to mind, and this is a, a question that I have around managing a central bank. And one of the things is at least my image of, of people who work in central banks is that there are a lot of people who are very smart uh, who have often been the smartest people in the room, in their various rooms, like of, of life in school, and uh, that also very ambitious uh, and very intellectually uh, curious. And 
I can imagine it is both an incredibly exciting place to work, but it also can be, I, my hypothesis is a somewhat complicated place to be the chief executive officer uh, of. And so I, I might be completely off, uh, Steve, but I'd love to know like what, if you were to give advice to like a new governor of a, a central bank, it doesn't have to be just Canada, it could be any other country, on how to be on how to like run the institution as like the CEO, like on a more managerial uh, level. What advice would you you give uh, that person? Well, first of all, you've described it very well. Um, you know, at the top of, or not even at the top, throughout the central bank, it's a, uh, it's almost every central bank I've been anywhere near is based on a culture of excellence and excellence in the extreme, and paying attention to details if if you know if the public ever knew how much work goes into something that seems so tiny uh, they might be flabbergasted they, I, I think they would be they might actually think they're not getting their their money's worth and yet no detail is unimportant in this in the in work that is this important you know every day you feel that sense of responsibility which is glorious you feel like this matters so much aren't we privileged to be part of it so you have that attitude around the table and everybody uh, wants to give their very, very best and they're really, really good at it. And so how do you manage that? Well, to be honest, I think um, I'm gonna tell you one more Star Trek thing. I mean, I, you, if, you watch, if you watch the Star Trek The Next Generation, which I know you have, uh, and watch Jean-Luc Picard and how he is modeled as a leader you will see a lot of great uh, traits there. And I think there's, he's been very cleverly written. He, he's, he's obviously not perfect. You know, he's a little bit unemotional in the early seasons. You know, he's a bit of a mechanic. And yet, you know, what you see is, is people absolutely love him and would do anything for him, you know. And, and, and he's always consulting them. You know, there's only nine seconds left. The, the world the black hole is going to swallow the alpha quadrant you know in nine seconds and he asked Jordy, you know options you know and Jordy, of course is working is just as hard and he's got an idea and picard doesn't debate it he just says make it so and the problem is solved you know and and so you see those incredible examples of teamwork in action and I can tell you at the, at the governor's, you know, the, what the governor does when it's time for a big decision is, uh, which is, you know, a regular occurrence, uh, we begin the conversation with the person who has been at the table the least amount of time to make sure that they get as much time as they're willing to take to describe what they think we should do and why. And then we go to the next person who's been there the, 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 the least amount of time and so on. And the governor always goes last, never leads with, here's what I think. Here's what I think we should do. What do you think? You know, that would be completely backwards. Okay. And that, that just, that means that we don't just, we don't just practice collegiality or, you know, sussing each other out or debating one another. We actually make it an obligation. It is, it is part of the deal. And if you do that, then most of the time, by the time you get to the governor, the governor doesn't have to decide anything. Everybody's reached clarity. Uh, you know, you've, you've asked enough questions and you're kind of like, you know what? I agree with this. And so let's make it so. 
And, uh, and anyway, my, so my advice is to not try to do everything yourself. In fact, I don't think it's possible. I mean, uh, you, you can just, you could work every minute that you're awake if you want, and you'd just be doing stuff that somebody else is already doing for you. And uh, people are actually better at it. You know, people are, you know, you got a lot of great experts in the central bank and you can learn more from them in half an hour on a one-on-one than you could learn by reading for a whole week on a subject. Nobody, you know, it's just an inefficient way to spend your time. So uh, anyway, my advice is not just to do teamwork, but to take it literally. That is make your team work, right? And then just mop it up. Um, I mean, one of the books I read uh, when I was just became a CEO was, you know, uh, it, the title of it, and I forget who wrote it now, it's, the title is Do Nothing. The, the, the first thing is how to be a great CEO, you know, the little print. And then the big title is Do Nothing. Okay. And, you know, so if everybody thinks the boss is doing nothing, they'll do all the stuff and say, here's what we think we should do. And it's hard to practice because it feels risky. It feels like somebody's going to make a mistake and, you know, and you're going to wear it. And there's always a risk with it, but there's no, there's no reward without some risk. And that, and that, and the taking that risk delivers every time in my, in my experience. I agree. People often underestimate what they can delegate. Uh, we're not a huge organization at Venture for Canada. We're around 35 people, but someone who reports into me was asking for uh, support around delegation and provided this list of uh, tasks and around 15 things. And I went through them, like probably half of them. And I was just like, delegate, <laughs> delegate, delegate, delegate. And, and I share that just because I think that it is something, not just this person, but like most people, including myself at many points, uh, will underestimate how much they can delegate uh, to, to their teams uh, in order to, to get more, uh, more stuff done. Anyway, Steve, this has been such a pleasure. We have chatted about a, such a wide range of topics, everything uh, from Star Trek to your personal journey around uh, understanding and embracing uh, uncertainty uh, and some of the macroeconomic uh, factors that are driving this new age of uncertainty. I think your book is an excellent read for anybody who wants to understand some of the factors shaping the world and that the main takeaway that one can't predict the future, except to say that it's going to be more uncertain uh, than, uh, than the past. So Steve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a true pleasure today. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our socials and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture for Canada, that is Venture for Canada, or email us at podcast at venturefocanada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Latifa Farah, and that was Scott Sturrett. Until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful.